Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 15. Welcome to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm Joey Brandon, your host, and today we're going to be talking about pruning, everybody's favorite topic when it comes to business. We're going to be talking about firing customers. Well, not just firing customers, but also firing customers. There are lots of areas in a business where you need to prune, and it's a Sometimes we have no choice, but other times, and right now, frankly, we're in an economic environment where more businesses should be pruning. And I run into this with clients a lot. I actually run into this with colleagues a lot, people who are in consulting businesses like me. And one of their failings is that they don't prune often enough. And I had a very very poignant lesson in pruning. About two years ago when I sold a business that had provided my daily livelihood for about seven years, and it was a wake-up call for me as far as the importance and the value of pruning and how if you really want to grow, if you want to take your business to the next level, you're going to have to engage in pretty aggressive pruning. So we're going to spend some time today talking about that. One of the things that I think is fascinating about pruning is that, and I really feel that this is kind of the natural order of things. The way the world is put together, it, it things need to be pruned in order to grow. If you look at agriculture, horticulture, you know the the, the basic tenets of how to grow plants and how to make thriving crops all hinge on this idea of pruning because you have a limited amount of resources available as far as water and nutrients go. And if you don't prune, you dilute the the um, the reach of those nutrients and, and water and all the other things that plants need among a population so vast that it can't support really fruitful development of that crop. And so farmers will tell you, horticulturalists will tell you that if you if you want a a thriving crop, if you want really fruitful plants, you have to engage in pruning. And pruning involves not getting rid of the the branches or the limbs or the plants that are doing well. It means getting rid of the ones that aren't doing well. And if you get rid of the ones that aren't doing well, it means that there's more available, more, more resources available for the ones that are. And in professional practices, in small companies, we're all living with this reality of a limited amount, a fixed amount of resources at our disposal to employ in the business, whether that's cash, whether that's the owner's time, whether that's the availability of team members to engage in special projects, uh, whether that's the amount of attention that we can give customers. We all live in this world where we don't have an unlimited supply of resources. And so we have to allocate those to the best places. But especially in the area of customers, we have a very hard time cutting back. And we're going to talk about why that's the case and this kind of myopia that develops 
when it comes to customers that doesn't seem to exist in other areas of the business when it comes to pruning. But this this whole idea of pruning, you can see it all around you in the natural order of things. If you're I grew up I grew up in Florida and in Florida we had a, an ocala in the middle of the state where I grew up. We had these huge pine forests. The Ocala National Forest is a huge pine forest. And so you have these these really tall pine trees and underneath them not a lot's going on except for palmetto bushes and just weeds. And this stuff, you know, palmetto bushes can grow anywhere. They're kind of before Brazilian pepper trees invaded Florida, palmetto bushes were kind of the scourge of the the Florida landscape. And you, these things will pop up everywhere. And I remember growing up in uh, in the neighborhood where I grew up, we had woods behind our house, and we would go back there and you'd play. And there were just – it was sandy soil, pine trees everywhere, palmetto bushes everywhere. But then we would drive through the forest on our way to Daytona Beach or Ormond Beach on State Road 40, and you could see these areas where the the landscape was just black and the tree trunks were black up to about 15, 20 feet. And the, the palmetto was gone. All the undergrowth was, undergrowth was gone. And these fires, whether they're controlled burns or natural wildfires, had occurred, and they'd clean out all of the brush and all of the undergrowth. And that's what made the trees healthy. And when there were control burns, a lot of these were set by the timber companies that would grow the pine trees. These pine trees were essentially crops for them over a 20-year period. And they would set these fires, and the National Forest Service would set these fires to clear out the growth so that the trees would have room to grow. You see it everywhere, but it's hard for us as business owners to wrap our heads around the idea of pruning in our business because we don't like the idea of loss. We've been taught that all loss is bad. Loss of revenue is bad. Loss of employees is bad. Loss of customers is bad. Loss of facilities, loss of locations, loss of any kind of loss is bad. And so we we don't want to experience that, even if it's self-imposed, and a lot of times especially if it's self-imposed. But what happens when you don't have pruning is that those resources go to places that will consume them without constraint so you know in a garden you've got weeds and weeds can suck up water with no end in sight they just that's what they do they consume resources so in a business what happens is you have customers who for lack of a better term become weeds in your business and they'll consume resources without constraint every time that you that that they call they need something from you every time that your team has to get involved with them it takes away from somebody else and it's not uh it's it's not a simple one-to-one equation where involvement with this customer takes away from one customer in a lot of cases those weeds involvement with one weed customer takes away from 20 regular customers or 20 profitable customers and if you don't do something about them, they'll continue to consume resources in your business. Employees are the same way. If you have a team member that's not functioning the way they need to be and that they just they shouldn't be on your bus. It's not not a matter of they need a different seat on your bus. It's the fact that they just should not be on your bus. If you don't do something about that, then they're going to consume an inordinate amount of resources from your management team, from their colleagues from your payroll, um, all kinds of areas of the business are going to be impacted if you don't weed those, if you don't call, call those people out, prune them out. So typically when, when we're in businesses, 
um, there's two types of pruning that happen, and I alluded to this earlier. There's voluntary pruning and there's forced pruning. And we've been through a, a tough few years from, you know, in this area in central southwest Florida, the housing market really drives a lot of the economy here. And so when the recession hit and the housing market imploded, it forced a lot of businesses to prune, not because they wanted to, but because they had to. And unfortunately, a lot of them put off the pruning longer than they needed to and longer than they could afford. And some of those businesses went over and never recovered. I was, I was having lunch with a friend of mine this week, and he was talking about um, spending some time you know, right before the recession hit with some business owners, uh, colleagues of his, and some of the things that they were saying made him realize that there was a recession coming. There was a, there was a time when the, they knew that sales were going to drop, and, and it wasn't necessarily something he could definitely put his finger on, but it was something that he just knew was going to happen. And so he went back, he left that meeting, he went back to his office, and he told his chief operations officer, we're going to cut. And times had never been better. I mean, they were having some of the best sales numbers they'd ever had, maybe the best sales numbers they've ever had. And the operations manager was incredulous. How could you cut? We are, we're at our prime. We are doing things now that we have to have these people for, and you're telling us we have to cut everybody's salary by 10%, we're going to have to get rid of these people, and and they got into this big argument over it. But the business owner kind of held his ground and said, but we have to cut, and, and you may not agree with it, but that's what we're going to do. And, of course, we all know the story later, you know, two years later, a year later, if they had they not made those cuts when they did, they would have been forced to make them. And the thing about being forced to make cuts and being forced to prune is that it, it always puts you in a worse financial position, not just because you've undergone the period of the increased expense before you were forced to prune, but because pruning when you're forced to is a much more expensive task. It has a more expensive toll on operations it can be more financially expensive. When you talk about things like um, massive layoffs and their effect on your unemployment tax rate or layoffs and their effect on potential litigation, if you, if you pick the times and places when you want to prune, a lot of times you don't have to deal with that kind of stuff. But when, you're, when your hand is forced and you have no other choice, the timing may not be great for those kind of layoffs, and it may cost you a lot more in dollars, but it's certainly going to cost you a lot more in terms of your the interruption to your business operation. So when it's forced, something that's interesting to me is that when it's forced, it's forced because you're unhealthy and you're trying to get back to healthy. But when it's voluntary, you're pruning because you're healthy and you want to become more healthy. That's the thing about pruning. When, when a gardener prunes or a farmer prunes back parts of his crop, he's pruning because he wants the, the crop conti to continue to be healthy. He doesn't wait for it to get sick before he prunes. He prunes as part of the process of maintaining a healthy plant. But when you're forced to prune, it's because the plant has become unhealthy. So there's a different kind of cost here that's involved, and that's the lost opportunity cost of having been healthy the entire time. If you talk to that business owner who I was alluding to earlier who had to make those cuts, 
He didn't have to make them when he made them. He could have waited. But the result was when if because he voluntarily pruned, he was able to shape his business operation ahead of the downturn and remain profitable during the downturn. He was more profitable during the downturn certainly than he would have been had he not pruned. And then coming out of the downturn, he was even more profitable because it's much easier to build profits on profits rather than recover profits after losses. So if you if you have this nagging sense that, oh my gosh, we're talking about pruning and there's probably some things I need to change about my business. There's some people I need to fire. There's some clients I need to disengage from. Um, there are some vendor relationships that I need to – and we're going to talk about all these different areas when you can prune later – if you haven't proactively addressed pruning before in your business, if you've never pruned voluntarily, then I can just about guarantee you that you should be pruning right now because it's one of those things that unless you build it into a regular part of your business operation, you will get to a point where you should have pruned and you didn't, and then you're already missing out on the increased profitability and the opportunities for growth. And you're also incurring higher costs, so you're losing on two fronts. So understand that you can voluntarily prune or you can be forced to prune. And if you've never voluntarily pruned, then you need to. It's, it should be part of your operating matter of course in the business. So how you know how do you prune? Well, what you have to look at is – you don't just go in with the hatchet and start slashing away. When you're pruning, it's a very um, – I don't know what the word is. It's a very intentional process when you prune. It's not haphazard. The farmer doesn't go in and just say, I'm going to cut 20% of all the branches off the tree or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull 20% of the vines out of the ground. He goes through and he selects the vines that aren't fruitful. And that's what you need to do from a customer standpoint. You have customers that are profitable and you have customers that are break-even and you have customers that aren't profitable. And we do a lot of this analysis when we go in to work with clients for the first time. Usually before we even agree to work with them while we're doing our due diligence, we'll go in and do some things like customer concentration risk to find out what percentage of the revenues come from what percentage of the customers and there's, you probably heard of the Pareto principle, and it's this kind of rule of thumb where in business, 80% of your revenues come from 20% of your customers. And I'm always amazed when we run this analysis that it, it, it works out. You know, It's like 81% of the revenues came from 19.5% of the customers uh, or 78% of the revenues came from 78.5% of the customers or sorry, 19.5% of the customers or whatever the numbers are. But that 80-20 rule almost always holds true. It's very rare for us to get into a situation where it doesn't hold true. When it doesn't hold true, it's usually because the sample size is so small that it's skewed. So it's, for instance, if, if somebody has five customers, then that may not hold true. But if they have 50, it's almost always going to be the case that the 80-20 rule holds. If they have 5,000, it's definitely going to be the case that the 80-20 rule holds. If it's 50,000, it's probably going to be the case that the 80-20 rule holds. So when you're 
when you're trying to figure out what to prune, recognize that that top 20% of your customers, those are the ones that you're trying to shift the resources to because those 20% can become even more profitable. And if it's not a case of growing services or products sold to the 20%, it's going out and finding more that look like the 20% and growing the business on those. So there are some things that you can do data analysis-wise, analytically, to identify who are your most profitable customers. Some companies have really good information systems and they can pull this data out. Some struggle with it. Um, so, you know, it's not uncommon that we have some housekeeping that we have to go through to get better systems in place so they can measure who those most profitable customers are. But And, and if you don't have the systems in place, then that really should be priority one is to get somebody in there who knows – the software package you're using, who knows your business operation, and get them to help you um, get the processes set up so you're collecting the right information as you're going through the business and that later you're able to pull that out and understand who the most profitable customers are. Then you have this second group of customers who um, they're not unprofitable and they're not profitable. They're basically break-even. It's costing you uh, about what you're bringing in to service them. And it's a tough call on these folks. You know, there it could be you're not making money because your prices are too low. It could be that you're not making money because your processes are very inefficient and you're not able to realize economies of scale with this group like you should be. And there's lots of operational opportunities in that middle group to go back and look at your operation and see if – we can change some things to make those folks profitable. But for now, we're going to skip past them. We know we're going to keep the profitable people. The ones who are break-even, we're going to withhold judgment on because there's probably some things we can change about the way we do business that will make them profitable. Or there's some things that we can change about our pricing and what they pay us to make them profitable. And then we can move on to this third group. So the third group is the unprofitable group of customers. And you say, well, how in the world could somebody be unprofitable? Well, it, it can be a tough thing to figure out because when you're talking about the unprofitable customers, you're talking about customers that basically have 0% gross margin or in some cases negative gross margin. And what I mean by gross margin is there's the revenue that the customer brings in, the, the revenue that they pay you. And then there are the direct costs associated with that revenue. And direct costs increase proportionally with the revenue. So in a manufacturing business or in a products business, your direct costs are going to include the cost to buy and or make your product. So if I'm selling, uh, I'm selling swimming pools, for instance, and it costs me – uh, $25,000 to put a swimming pool in the ground. Well, if I'm charging the customer $25,000 for that swimming pool, then I'm not making any money. It's worse than that because I have overhead that I have to cover, and when I allocate some of the overhead to that customer, I'm actually losing money. So that's an unprofitable customer. And it will usually be fairly easy to understand who the, the $25,000 revenue, $25,000 expense customer is. That will usually show up on a report somewhere. 
it's even easier to see the $25,000 revenue customer and the $30,000 expense customer. So that person, before I even get to overhead, I've already lost $5,000. I'm literally selling the product for less than it cost me to make it. And that's never a good situation. You can't do that for very long and stay in business. But both of those both of those situations are ones that I think you can pretty easily identify, and those people should be on your your possible pruning list. The tougher group to identify is the going back to the swimming pool analogy is the group that it costs you twenty seven or costs you twenty five thousand dollars to put the pool in the ground. And the customer is paying you $27,000. And you go, hey, I'm making $2,000 on that customer. But if I've got a million dollars worth of expenses that I have to cover, I need an awful lot of those $2,000 swimming pools in the ground in order to just cover my indirect costs, my overhead. So the overhead is what it costs me to pay my managers in the office, what it costs to rent the office facility, what it costs to buy the trucks and the equipment, what it costs to uh, pay my property taxes and my insurance bills and office supplies and all that stuff. So you have in this possible pruning list people that I know I'm not making money on because I'm selling the pool for 25 and it cost me 25 people that I'm losing money on because I'm selling the pool for 25 and it cost me 30 and then the more nuanced group is the the group where it cost me 25 and I'm only selling it for 27 and I should be selling it for 30 to make any money on these so in the first two cases with the one that you're just break even on and then the one that you're definitely losing money on, the first question I have for a business owner is why are those people still here? You know, the the and it's not a question of even why are they still here? It's how did they get here in the first place? Because there's something broken with your sales process for that to happen. If you're bringing customers in and you're it's literally costing you more money to buy the product than you can sell it for, then a salesman doesn't have very good pricing guidelines or they're not paying attention to pricing guidelines. Something is broken in that sales process. So my my issue there would be um, it's not a question of whether we're going to keep this customer. If it's a transactional business where we're building a swimming pool, it's just the thing of we're not going to build another pool for that person. You can't stop in the middle of the relationship and say we're not going to finish the pool. But you can say, well, we're not going to do any more at that price. So that be- that becomes a sales training issue. The the problem that we you're really going to have to spend time on figuring out here as, as far as pruning. So what I'm saying is, you don't even prune those folks. You just don't bring them in anymore. Now, if you're in a service business where it's not a discrete product like a swimming pool that you're building and you don't have a definite end date in place, then you're going to have to raise prices and you're going to have to find a way to discuss that with the customer so that it doesn't offend them that you're raising prices. And you're going to have to find a way to do it so that, you know, if you're not charging enough for everybody and you raise prices and half the customers leave, did you raise prices enough so that you can still stay in business? So, Those are almost separate things. I'm assuming that most people listening to this are not selling product for less than it costs them to make it or deliver it. So that's that's kind of the caveat here. I'm assuming that you've done that. If you haven't done that, 
that's a topic for another show. And that and that's a sales process topic. That's not a business operations pruning topic. That's that's something's broken in your sales process. You need to go address that. But there are lots of cases where on paper, if you look at the revenue and the direct costs, we're making money. But the problem is that pr- that customer is not profitable for us because we can't build a, a business on top of that kind of customer and cover our overhead and expected profit. And so for those people, you have to figure out in the, in the group we were just talking about, you shouldn't have sold to them in the first place. In this group, usually something has changed to make them unprofitable. So your prices across the board have raised. You're, you've invested in infrastructure that's more expensive or equipment that's more expensive, and your overhead costs have gone up as a result of that because you're kind of moving, you're evolving with the market. But these customers have stayed right where they're at. They're, they look like the same customers you had 10 years ago when you were still using you know 20-year-old, 30-year-old technology, and now you've moved into the modern age, and they're still stuck in this backwards kind of world wanting the old product or the old process or the old service that you sold. And you're hesitant to let go of them because you go, well, we're making money on them. You don't understand. We're making $2,000 on that customer. If we lose them, we're not going to make that $2,000 anymore. And these are the conversations that I get into with business owners about pruning. And and they're really good conversations to have, much different from the we have a broken sales process we need to fix because we actually get into a debate about this customer is profitable for us. And I admit to them, yes, on a direct basis, that customer is profitable for you. But what you have to understand is that we're trying to build a business where every single customer contributes, let's say, at least $5,000 toward overhead and profit, not $2,000. And so what this customer actually is doing is taking $3,000 away from us because they're $3,000 under where we want our threshold to be. And convincing a business owner to let go of that $2,000 of gross profit in the hopes that they will be able to go out and replace it with $5,000 in gross profit can be a very tall order. And it's a tall order not from a logic or business management standpoint. It's a tall order from a psychological standpoint because you're asking the business owner to give up real dollars in their pocket today for potential dollars in their pocket tomorrow. And that can seem risky. But if you're going to grow your your company – you have to do this. There is no way around it. If you have unlimited resources, you can hire people who will just service that $2,000 of gross profit. The problem is we don't have unlimited resources. We've only got so many people to make and deliver that product or service, and we have a choice to make. We can continue to employ them making that product or service that's going to make us $2,000 in profit, or we can get rid of that customer and employ them to to work on customers that are going to make us $5,000 in profit. So one of the things that you you often will run into is, like I said, these, these tend to be legacy customers. They've been with you a very, very long time, which again makes it psychologically difficult because you feel loyalty to these people. And I get that. I'm not saying that you should just – you know, send them off and, and say, oh, it was great knowing you. You did well for us for a long time, and now we don't need you anymore. That's not what I'm advocating. 
I think in most cases, those people who are most loyal and they're your best customers, they continue to develop with you. I think business owners use that excuse of, well, you just want me to be disloyal to my customers, and that's not the kind of company we are. That's not the kind of values we're built on. I hear that, and and I do not see loyalty in their day-to-day actions. I see laziness. I see what I what I really see is uh, a, a comfortable kind of a, a comfortable complacency where they just don't want to change. It's not that they're tremendously loyal. Look, if you were tremendously loyal, you'd be doing everything you could to help grow that customer's business, and they would be progressing with you. They wouldn't be stuck in technology that's 20 years old. They would be demanding the next generation of technology. If you were super loyal to that customer, you'd be doing everything you could to drive their business to grow so that it could grow with yours. What you really are is lazy because that customer has continued to pay you They haven't rocked the boat. They haven't caused a lot of issues to tick you off, and you just want to continue to take that $2,000 gross profit. But what you have to understand is that you're not going to get to the next level by continuing to be lazy. You have to work your butt off. So you can eat. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not opposed to you going to that customer and seeing if they can grow into that $5,000 profit customer. But that's going to require you to step out of your comfort zone, and a lot of times it's going to require you to, to, to admit, hey. I haven't been trying to do everything I could to help you, and I want to change that. Because they're going to expect an explanation for why you all of a sudden want to get involved in their business in such a big way. I'll say it again. I think most of the time, that's a waste of time. I think the the time and energy and resources it takes to build a cultural shift within a customer is – is not something most companies can afford. They're better off to redefine who that customer is, to prune the ones who don't fit with with the new model. Um, maybe give them an, an option to self-select. If it's just a matter of raising prices, just tell them, hey, we have to raise prices because this is where our company is going. And we understand if this isn't something that you can do and allow them to kind of self-select or opt out for you know, going somewhere else. What's funny is that um, I've gone through price increases a couple times in companies that I've owned, and I've done lots of price increases with clients. And the customers that they're usually worried about leaving are usually the first ones to sign up and say, "Okay, we, you know, we're we're okay with the new price. We kind of knew it was coming. We know we've gotten a good deal for a long time." So. Again, it comes down to the business owner's fear of change. They go, "Oh, we can't raise we can't raise prices on these people. They'll all leave us." Well, that's not usually what happens. It, usually, it's your who you think are your best customers that have the biggest issue with your price increases. The worst ones already know they've been getting a good deal and they're happy to pay a little bit more to stay with you. So, when you're trying to identify on the customer front who those unprofitable ones are. Think about if you can get your hands on the numbers, absolutely look at the numbers. But a lot of companies don't have the um, the metrics to understand whether each individual customer is profitable for them. If you do, that's phenomenal, and I, I applaud you. That's where most companies – that's where all companies need to be, but very few are. <clears throat> but another way to look at this and trying to identify who's in that unprofitable tier that we need to prune – is anybody who's out of sync with your future? 
if you are to sit down with this customer and describe where your customer's going and you see fear in their eyes uh, about being left behind, that's probably a good candidate for pruning. It, what you definitely need to have is an honest conversation about whether they think that they're up for the ride with you. And if they say no, then you work out a cordial plan to m- move them over to somebody else who can service their needs better. But anybody who's at a step with your future or the future you've envisioned for your company, you're going to need to prune them because you're not going to be able to drag them along kicking and screaming. The same thing holds for employees. When you have uh, employees, it may not be profitable or unprofitable. It's productive or unproductive. So the the employees who are unproductive, the quote-unquote C players, in the last episode we talked about A players and bringing them on. We may do a future episode on C players and what you do with them. The short answer from this podcast is you prune them. Now, there are cases where you might want to develop the people. You might want to work with them and try to train them and see if they can become B or A players. But let's assume for purposes of this episode that you've given them opportunities, you've done what you can to train them, and they're just not working out. You have to get to the point where you can prune. And the same way that you should be pruning customers on a regular basis, not when you're forced to, but voluntarily pruning, understanding that that's what's required to keep things healthy, you need to be doing the same thing with employees. And I get a lot of pushback on this. Probably the most famous uh, person or or case study for this was General Electric under Jack Welch, where supposedly they fired the bottom 10% of performers in the management of the company every single year or every two years or something like that. And I'm not saying that you come up with a number and just say, we're going to fire 10% of our employees every year. But you should have a process for regularly reviewing at least once a year, hopefully more often than that, who are your most productive and least productive people. And I don't think you should just dismiss the least productive out of hand. You need to understand why they're not productive and whether you have failed them in some way. And I think that's usually the case. The business owners, the managers have failed the employees by not giving them the training or the standards or holding them accountable the way they sh- they should be held accountable in order to to uh, perform very effectively but you should have a process for evaluating who's been who's been most productive and who's been least productive and you should have a protocol for dealing with the least productive people and having conversations with them and giving them resources to become better and if they can't you should prune them this is not something that's optional for growing companies. This is something that they build into their DNA. We're going to have productive people here, and if we don't, we're going to take steps to prune them. The same way that you ask whether your customers are out of sync with your future, you need to understand whether employees are on board with your mission, vision, values, um, You know what you're trying to accomplish as a company, because if they don't fit the cultural element of what you're trying to accomplish, if they don't see themselves being part of the bigger group and going down this road toward the grand vision that you've laid out, then productive or not, you guys are going to have a problem down the road. So it can it can come down to metrics like productive versus unproductive. Um, there, there are things that businesses measure 
production quota hours, sales quota hours, sales quotas for for salesmen. Um, there are subjective criteria on performance evaluations. There's all every position out there has some objective and subjective measurements. The problem is that employers don't build in a review of those on a regular basis. They do it, but the review is an end in and of itself. And it's just a tick box that they're able to check off in the HR file and says, yes, I reviewed this person's performance. I've seen very few companies that I go into where if a person isn't performing well, they have a plan to deal with that where one of the options is to prune that person out of the company. And it's amazing. And they'll go to great lengths to train and retrain and evaluate and reevaluate. But there's never an end of the process tree that says, we're going to fire this person. Usually the only thing that leads up to firing that person is some kind of termination for cause, whether it's fraud or sexual misconduct or, uh, you know, lying, or, it's kind of the real egregious stuff. There's usually not a set um, process for just saying, hey, this person's not making the mark, and so we're going to replace them. So that's, that's employees. Vendor relationships. This is another area where we don't see a lot of pruning. And this, I think part of this is in, in a lot of small companies, the owners and the managers, they get to know their vendors. They have personal relationships with them. They know their kids. You know, they, And this is a case where the business owner is the customer. And so it's their money that's going to the vendor. And I have seen business owners feel guilt about switching vendors because they say things like, well, you know, he's got a daughter that's going to college or – you know, his son was sick or, you know, he's been going through a hard time in his marriage and I just don't want to do that to him right now. And that, I mean, that makes it tough. And I, again, I don't want to sound like the cold hearted guy who just says, Hey, if people aren't making you money, you go out and fire them. But for there, for every case where, um, you know, they're, they're worried about a guy being sick and they don't want to pull the rug out from underneath their, their vendor financially for every one of those, there's 10 where they just became lazy and they're not looking at the vendor relationship in terms of the value that it's adding to the business or the value that they're getting for what they pay for. And the simple fact is that relationships change, situations and circumstances change. And what was a highly value added relationship five or six or 10 years ago has diminished greatly in value because You've either outgrown the vendor or the vendor – you're not in the vendor's sweet spot anymore. They've grown to a different place, and the two of you just don't line up anymore. And both of you are too afraid to have a frank conversation about the fact that you're not an ideal fit. And you, so you continue to have this relationship when you should have moved on a long time ago. So what I'm telling you in this episode is you need to build in not only processes for pruning customers and employees – you need to build in processes for pruning vendors. And one of the big benefits that you can realize when you get into vendor relationships is when you consolidate or deepen relationships with a vendor, it can add a tremendous amount of value. I've seen this happen a lot in the last 10 years where technology has allowed vendors to do more with less and they can service more parts of your operation than they could before. A good example is IT. 10 years ago, you had one company 
who serviced your printing needs. Uh, so all the printers in your office, you know, that those were taken care of by one company. You had another company who serviced uh, usually your copier, if you had one of those, or if you're really fancy, your scanner. And sometimes you'd have two different sides of the company do the copier or the scanner. Then you had a different company who came in and did your IT services. And then you had a different company you know, or maybe several different companies that did all of your software management. Today, be- because of the the pace of technology or the consolidation of technology or, or how, whatever you want to attribute it to, that stuff is usually handled by one company. You know, we've got – unless you're in a very paper-intensive industry like the law, the legal community – or you know you're a closing agent for a title company or something like that. Most companies don't generate a lot of paper. They don't have those you know Ryko or Xerox copiers anymore. They've got a few scanners and they've got a couple of printers and they got a heck of a lot of computers and laptops and they have one IT firm that manages it all. And a lot of con- times they don't even install their own software anymore. They have the IT company do that on a thin you know they have thin clients in the office and everything else is on a server. So. If if you still have the copier company and you still have the printer toner guy and you still have the the IT uh, hardware guy and you still have all the different software vendors because you just don't want to change, then you're missing out on the value of having all that under one roof. And that's an area where there really is tremendous value in doing that. Um, you know, we we see the same thing with payroll companies and PEOs and um, outsourced providers. You know, they're those companies are doing a lot more. You see, PEO companies now placing virtual assistants and on a contract basis, and that didn't exist ten years ago. So, understand that when you're looking at your vendor relationships. You can add a lot to your business by either deepening existing relationships or consolidating some relationships that were you were paying three different people and you could pay one person. Now, the only reason you haven't done it is because you don't like change, you don't like the confrontation, but you know what? You're the business owner or you're the manager. It's your job to feel uncomfortable every once in a while. So do what's right for the business and do some pruning on the vendor side. Uh, a lot of times on the vendor side too, you just need to change the relationship. And then I'll, I'll pick on the IT industry again. Um, technology has changed so rapidly, and it's not uncommon for me to see ten million dollar companies with a hundred employees who are still using the same IT guy that serviced their ten person office when they got started fifteen years ago. And there's all kinds of problems with that, and it's not that guy's fault. He was great at servicing the 15-person firm, and he's still great at servicing the 15-person firm. But given his resources, he's never going to be able to knock it out of the park with 100 different people, desktops and the the proliferation of mobile devices now that he has to service and maintain. So understand that consolidating is one option, but also just switching out to get a fresh set of eyes on things. Another area that you might print is so we're going to start thinking further out of the box. So we've talked about customers, we've talked about employees, and we've talked about vendors. Every one of those has a direct connection to your day-to-day business operation, either on the revenue side or on the cost side. The next area I want to talk about is associations or affiliations. 
And this goes from everything, everything from industry, associations, affiliations, accreditation groups, down to your local chamber of commerce. Um, you need to look at, do I need to prune any of those affiliations or relationships? And the reason you might need to, to prune them is because having too many is going to dilute your time and attention. And these need to be things that contribute to you and that you can also contribute to. And if you've got 15 different organizations that you're involved with, just because they asked and you thought, well, that's, you know, it's not a whole lot of money and um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't hurt to be able to put that logo on our website. Think twice about that. Because if you contrast your involvement with, say, 10 different industry associations and local business groups with cutting that down to three, ask how involved would you be with those three? How much would you be paying attention to their publications? What would be the opportunities for you to contribute to them and to have them come in and contribute to your organization? And I see I see this a lot um, where – we go into situations with business owners and companies that we work with, and because we don't serve one particular industry, there's a lot that we have to learn about some customers' industries because we just haven't done those types of businesses before. And their industry association is usually the first place that we look. Some have very uh, very well-developed state associations. Some have national or international associations. And we'll go to those associations and, and talk to them about what kind of industry data is available, what they can do to help bring us up to speed, what kind of publications they have, um, what kind of roundtables they have where we can talk to other business owners that aren't threatened by our client You know, from a competition standpoint. We can get intelligence on the industry and best practices and, and all of that stuff. And when we – so when we go into a client and we say, hey, what's the association that has – this information and we go you go well you know so and so probably has it and you go they probably have it well how long have you been a member uh you know, 20 years okay so you've been a member of this group for 20 years and you don't know whether they have the basic industry benchmarking data available for the exact business that you're in and they don't and and you go well okay so what other groups are you involved in? Chamber of Commerce. Okay, so how many Chamber of Commerce meetings have you been to in the last five years? You know, oh, I've been to a couple of after-hours social events. Have you ever served on the board? No. Have you ever chaired a committee? No. Have you ever been asked to host an event or offered to host an event? No. I mean, this is the vast majority of the companies that we talk to, and – you say, well, would you be better off? Let's say that we didn't do the chamber stuff anymore because you're not doing anything with it. You think that you're being a good citizen, but they can live without your money. It's not going to be that big a deal. You're not getting business because of them. We've already verified that, and I'm not knocking local chambers. But I am knocking the idea that you can be spreading yourself so thin that you get nothing out of any of these groups. And sometimes it can be a question of just choosing to get involved but a lot of times the choice to get involved is not made because they're overwhelmed by the choices in front of them. If they only had three choices to get involved in with the uh, local chamber, an international association, or uh, a state association, 
they could pick the venue that they felt would make the biggest difference in their business rather than trying to choose among 10 different venues. So I've already talked about that too long, but I see companies spending thousands of dollars on different association memberships, and I think most of it is needless. I think that they do have the – I think most of these associations, the well-run ones, are very good at what they do, and they have a tremendous amount of value to add. The business owners put themselves in a position where they're so diluted in terms of their attention to these groups that they'll never get the benefit of the value add that the best associations they're involved with have to offer. There's one last group I want to talk about in terms of pruning. And that's volunteer and pro bono activities. So and this, this has to do with the business owner, but it also has to do collectively with the group as a whole. And when you've got – when there's a lack of focus and a lack of pruning uh, to create that focus in what the company's involved in on a volunteer basis or what kinds of pro bono work that that company does – you wind up with a lot of dilution. So the CEO <coughs> maybe volunteers for um, you know, the local you know, homeless shelter or something, and two of his direct reports are involved in the local Boys and Girls Club, and another of his reports is an, involved with the local YMCA, and another one is involved with Meals and Wheels. And that's great. You know, you want everybody to be involved. But again, contrast that with what if everybody was really encouraged to put their efforts and their representation of the company into one organization or two organizations? What would you be able to accomplish? And it's not just what you would be able to accomplish from, uh, oh, we would get recognized or we'd be the premier business partner of that organization. What would you be able to accomplish for that organization, for that group? What kind of impact would you be able to make? And if you're intentional about pruning back the activities where you're not having a great impact, what's left are the activities where you are and the resources to have an even greater impact because you've pruned away some things and you have more resources to offer now. So in the beginning, it might be great to give employees the leeway to go out there and just get involved in whatever they want to get involved in. And there's lots of companies who will pay their employees to go out there and do that kind of stuff. And they'll, they'll pay them like half time or comp time for their volunteer hours. And, but, but I think it's a great practice to then intentionally circle back and say, what was your experience like? Was this a great use of your time? Not an okay use of your time, but was it a great use of your time? What was the impact you made on the organization? And if you find out that the impact is really great, why not throw the full weight of the company and really encourage other employees to get involved in that same group, that same organization, and have an even greater impact and leverage the focus that the team could bring to that nonprofit or volunteer pro bono Outfit And again, it's not just cutting for cutting's sake. It's building in a discipline of pruning as a matter of course. And when you prune, you have to step back and take stock of the situation and say, 
where where are we getting the most bang for our buck or where are we getting the most fruit for our labor? And we're going to take the places where we're not getting a lot of fruit for our labor and we're going to take the, we're going to cut those out and we're going to reinvest that time and energy in the places where we are getting fruit so we can get more fruit. That's the whole idea behind pruning. Now, why is it hard? Well, in most cases, it's hard because it involves money. I'm going to go back to the, the first area we talked about, which is customers. It's hard to prune customers because they give you money. And when you prune them, you're saying, I'm not going to get that money. And it's funny. You know, I've told people, I've told clients this, I've told lots of people this. Money changes people. I mean, it's, it's sad, but I've seen it happen so many times. And this is the same thing that happens when it comes to pruning. Things that you normally would not be involved with. If someone just came and described a situation, whether it's the way a customer treats you poorly or whether it's the amount of time and energy you have to pour into something uh, for little appreciation or a little reward. It doesn't matter. You know, if someone were to just come describe the situation to you without any indication of the role money played in that situation, you would say out of hand, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to make the hard choice or I'm going to do, I'm going to have the uncomfortable meeting or whatever it is. And I'm not going to, I'm choosing not to do this anymore. But you you interject the financial side of stuff and you put money into the picture and all of a sudden people's judgment changes. It's not just that their perceptions change, it's their judgment changes. What they see as good and bad, what they see as favorable and unfavorable literally changes when you add dollars to the mix. So understand that pruning is hard especially hard where it involves money because it involves money. And so you have to do a a double effort to focus on the non-financial aspects of what's involved and and literally frame questions in in ways like, if I weren't getting paid a dime for this, would I still be doing it? And of course, we don't want want to be in business and not get paid, but those kind of questions can help us um, get out from under this cloud of poor judgment that money often brings to the equation. The other thing is that you know some people are just afraid of loss in any way, shape, or form. You know, and it's it's sad. You, you see, you know, in extreme cases, you see shows on television like Hoarders, where people you know don't throw away their trash because they just can't part with things, uh, but. You can be that way in your business too. I've met business owners who have a lot of pride in saying, I've never lost a customer. And I heard somebody say this after they'd started a company. It was about five years old. I think our companies were about the same age at that time. And this person told me uh, she had never lost a customer. And I thought, wow, that's pretty impressive because I've lost customers. And you know, I had lost, lost customers because I had fired customers and I had lost customers because they'd fired me. And I thought, wow, I'd really like to be her. I'd I'd really like to be in this position where I had not lost a customer in five years. And I look back on that now and go, I would be miserable if I hadn't lost a customer in five years because I think you need to lose customers. The the idea of, you know, there's when I was in college, I had the opportunity to go study for a semester over in Israel. 
and I was studying archaeology and biblical history, and we went to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is is dead. Like there's nothing that lives there. And the reason nothing lives there is because it does not have an outlet. Uh, the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. It's below sea level. And the water just sits there and evaporates. And it becomes more and more and more nutrient and uh, dense. And it's highly uh, salty. And nothing can grow there. And that's the kind of situation you would be in if you never lost a customer. It's not a good place to be. You have to have an inflow and an outflow. Now, if you're growing, your inflow is going to exceed your outflow and you're going to continue to add to your customer account. But you need – I'm a firm believer that you need to be willing to let go of customers. You can't hoard them. You can't hoard your vendor relationships. You can't hoard your employees. You have to go at this with an open hand. And if you have a really hard time pruning, it could be because you just have a hard time letting go of anything in your life. And that may be some that may be a realization that allows you to take stock of the situation and make some tough choices that that um, you're not going to enjoy, but you realize are necessary. Other thing that makes it hard is just wanting to please people. I have this happen to me a lot. I, I like to please people. I don't like to make people upset. And I have held on to clients long past the time when I knew I should prune them because I was afraid to upset them. I was afraid that they were going to feel rejection from me, and I didn't want them to go through that. So I would hold on to them. I've held on to employees for that same reason. I've held on to vendors for that same reason. I've paid dues for associations and organizations for that reason. I've volunteered my time and my family's time, time I could have been giving my family that I was spending in nonprofits and doing pro bono activities because I wanted to please other people. And if that's you... You, I would go. I keep talking about this book in almost every podcast, but Dr. Henry Cloud's book "Necessary Endings" is a really good um, source for motivation to make those decisions. That they're not going to please people, but it's necessary for you to do what's in your best interest and theirs. You need to make the break. Um, some people find pruning hard because they just don't like change. Um, some people find pruning hard because they believe they can just do more. It's like, well, um, I know that it's going to – if I don't get rid of this customer, I'm not going to bring in – I'm going to be able to bring in another customer. But uh, I'm just going to work an extra few hours a week and I'll bring in that new customer anyway. And I'll do – I'll keep both of them. I'll keep the old one and I'll get the new one. And you know that's not rocket science. That That's an equation for burnout. So you're going to have to get to the point where you – are honest with yourself and it's not just up to you to do more pretty soon. You're going to have to make room by pruning. Um, one, we already talked about this, but I, I'll mention it again. One of the other reasons that pruning is hard is because measuring profit on a case by case basis isn't always easy. A lot of companies don't have the data at their fingertips to show them <coughs> who isn't profitable. Um, they have a gut feel for who is and isn't profitable. And gut feels are terrible, terrible things when it comes to data and analysis. Um, you really need hard numbers. Gut feels are good for things like employee performance or cultural fit. They're lousy metrics for profitability. If somebody says, 
I feel in my gut that that customer is profitable. I know we have a serious problem. Profitability is never a gut feel. It's either profitable or not profitable. And if you don't have the systems to measure that, it can make it really hard to let go of a customer because you just don't know and you're afraid that you might be letting go of the wrong person. The last thing that I'll say about pruning is that you do need to be careful. One of the things that... Um, that you're trying to accomplish with pruning is increasing your capacity. One of the things that can, if you don't do it well, what you can wind up doing is increasing your concentration risk. So what I mean by that is when you prune, the whole idea is that you're going to invest resources into areas of the business that are going to allow you to be more fruitful. So taken to its logical extreme in a bad way, what that would mean is we're going to continuously cut customers and reinvest that time and energy into our most profitable customer or customers. And then we're going to continue that process and continue that process. And if you take that to its conclusion, you wind up with one customer who's as profitable as they can possibly be. And that's not what we're after. We're not trying to increase our concentration risk and put all of our eggs in uh, one basket or in a fewer number of customer baskets from the customer standpoint. What we're trying to do is increase capacity. So the idea isn't, if you go back to the, the analogy of the crops, um, if you're, if you're – um, my grandparents grew scuppernons, uh, so that's kind of grape that grows in Florida. And so if you're pruning the scuppernon vines, the idea isn't to wind up with the largest scuppernon you can possibly get. The idea is to wind up with the most um, – the highest number of scuppernon clusters that are healthy as you can get. And so we're trying to increase the amount of fruit not just the size of one piece of fruit, if that makes any sense. <clears throat> but the danger is, especially in smaller firms, when you cut customers and you don't go out and get new customers with that excess capacity, you tend to reinvest your efforts in the existing customers. And that's a that can be a good thing. There's always more services that you can offer to your best customers or more products that you can sell to your best customers. And you should take advantage of your increased capacity to do that. But you also need to increase your customer base. What you're trying to do is weed out the unprofitable customers and replace them with very profitable customers. So just remember that it's always about increasing capacity. You're trying to reemploy resources to increase your capacity, not increase your concentration risk. When we talk to, when we talk to, to uh, clients about pruning, um, I alluded to this earlier, and I I have a, a story that's near and dear to my heart where I pruned essentially 80% of my business. Um, in 2012, I had been running um, a tax and accounting firm for seven years, and um, I was ready to get out of the tax the tax game. I just didn't enjoy it. It wasn't, it wasn't something I was particularly gifted or talented at. I mean, I, I did well. And I knew I know my way around a tax return, but I didn't want to put together super complex tax transactions. I didn't want to do 
tax returns that were of ever-increasing complexity. I never saw myself commenting on U.S. Treasury regulations and trying to sway IRS one way or another. And I've worked with people who do want that, and they're they're incredible people to work with. They're incredibly brilliant when it comes to the tax code and the tax law, but that's not what I felt called to do. What I really wanted to do was have an impact on businesses. I wanted to be the person who would enable businesses and business owners to get to that next level. And I wanted to be able to offer the small business world of that 2 to $20 million company the same kind of complex and sophisticated planning and strategic work that their counterparts who are $100 million and above had access to. And that's what I wanted to do. So I finally bit the bullet. And I pruned out 80% of my clients and I sold them to a firm where they were a much better fit and they're getting much better service than they got with me. And that was a terrifying moment in my professional career to to go from having a, a business that had an office and had employees to, to not having an office, um, going to a virtual company not having employees, it was going to be a while before I even hired an executive assistant and starting to regrow a business from scratch with a very, uh, a much smaller group of core customers that allowed me to do what I loved and what I thought I was gifted at. And that was pruning on a massive scale. I remember when my dad growing up, you know, once or twice a year, he would go prune the hedges outside of our house. And it looked like he damn near killed everything out there. And that's how I felt after I pruned off that 80% of my customers. I'm, I'm looking at this hedgerow you know, after my dad had pruned it going, I don't think that thing's ever going to come back. It's just going to die. And that's how I felt about my business. It was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this work. I just – I might go bankrupt. This is crazy what I've just done. And it's, I mean, it's a little terrifying to prune on that kind of scale. And what it allowed me to do, though, was take all the resources personally, all the attention, all the time, all the effort, all the energy that I had been putting into 80% of my customers and allowed me to refocus that, put some of it into the 20% that were remaining to give them the kind of service that they deserved, and then really reinvest what was left over into going out and increasing the capacity and increasing the size of my customer my, my customer base to be the kind of clients that I really like to work with. And that was an amazing experience because within six months, I had completely replaced all of the revenue and all of the earnings that I had. And I had greater profitability in this new after pruning model than I had before. So when I talk to you about this kind of stuff, understand that I know how incredibly difficult it is. I know how scary it is. And I've done it on grand scales like the one I just talked to you about. And I've done it on smaller scales where we've just had to go in and say, you know, these two or three relationships are not a great fit for us. And we're going to have to prune them back in order to have the kind of business that we want. And it's never easy. The thing that I can guarantee you about pruning is that it's exciting because it gets your blood flowing and it gets the adrenaline pumping, but it's never easy. And people are going to second guess you. People are going to tell you you're crazy. People are going to tell you that's not a smart way to run a business. 
But I guarantee you, if you'll build pruning into your business processes, if it becomes part of the rhythm of your annual operating cycle to step back and go, hey, what's not bearing fruit in this business? And where do we need to cut it out so that we can grow back stronger and healthier? You're going to thank me down the road for that. As terrifying as it is, it's one of the most exhilarating and rewarding parts of owning a business. So I thank you for, uh, for considering that. I hope that you have the courage to go out and do it because nothing will change your business's future like being able to put the time and the resources to the best use. And that's, that's exactly what we're talking about here. If uh, I don't think there's going to be a lot of show notes for this episode, but there will be um, opportunity for you to comment or offer your feedback. If you want to do that, you can go to axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 015. Thanks again for you guys who are leaving reviews on iTunes. Uh, it's a lot of fun to read that and to know that there's an audience out there that's getting some usefulness out of this content. I'm Joey Brandon. I'm your host, and we'll be back next week with episode 16.